When Doug and I first started TRP back in January of 2013, uh, we were both bivocational, meaning that in addition to our pastoral work here at the church, we had other normal jobs. Um, Doug at the time was working at Sears, and I was teaching Bible and biblical languages at Salisbury Christian School to high school juniors and seniors. I got to sneak in that biblical languages program uh, that was pretty, pretty awesome. I would give a shout out to my Greek and my Hebrew students, but I don't think any of them are here. Which is a shame. They've gone on to bigger and better things, probably. They're probably parsing verbs somewhere. I don't know. Um, if, if either of those things excites you, though, Greek and Hebrew, I believe, Kate's not here, so I can speak this into existence, I believe that this summer at least Tim and myself are going to be learning Greek. So if you guys want to jump into that, appreciate that. Uh, you're welcome to join us. In my four short years of teaching Bible at Salisbury Christian School, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about faith and about life. I learned what it looked like to take some of these nerdy theological and biblical concepts that I love exploring and how to actually uh, inform not only my life but the, the lives of 16 to 18 year old students. If any of you have spent time in this place with us, I'm sure that you have heard the, the phrase inaugurated eschatology, how Jesus brings the kingdom here to earth and how it pretty much shifts the whole paradigm of human history. I also learned a lot about the students, where they came from, what they believed or what they didn't believe, what they were concerned about, what they were troubled by, what excited them. It's amazing what young people will tell you when you create safe space for them to share and you give them the opportunity to share. I learned a lot of things from them that I wasn't really prepared to learn from them, the stories that they had about their life experience and about um, just where they've come from. I also learned a lot about myself, who I am, what I care about, what I'm called to do. I began learning how to be a pastor and a dad uh, at, during my time at Salisbury Christian School, and I learned a lot from my students and my fellow teachers, and these were really important moments for me in my life, and when I look back, I have great appreciation. I see a lot of students all around this place, and I know full well that TRP would not be what it is without you guys joining us. Two moments in the classroom, however, stick out to me. One was something that we called Affirmation Day. It was a day when, towards the end of the year, we would just kind of move the desk into a big circle, and we would just sit around, and we would say nice things about one another. And I remember being in the classroom with... Um, Jacob and Hannah Enterfeld, and I'll go ahead and call them out. They're twins, and they were sitting across uh, the, the aisle from one another, and Hannah said something about Jacob, and it was just super touching. And I'm, a, I'm an emotional guy, you know this. This is not news to you. And I just start like, <laughs> silent, like silently or not so silently breaking down into a little bit of tears, and we had to pass around the tissue box, and, and people were just affirming one another. And it was a beautiful thing to see, especially within a Christian school environment. It's not always... Um, the most amenable for growth, and it's not always the most amenable for honesty. But in, in those moments, we were able to cut through some of that. The other um, moment that I like to uh, go back to is something that I coined the dad talk. I gave a couple of these, and I would always give them towards the end of the year around prom time, and I would discuss dumb stuff like etiquette, and chivalry, you know? 
I would discuss how important it was for people to speak to their dates, to put the phone down and to engage in normal conversation with the people that they are with. One of the reasons that, that informed that was a story from a friend of mine who went to our version of prom. Uh, we had banquets because we weren't the dancing type. If you ever see me out in public and you see some of this, you can attribute it to my Christian school upbringing. I see people in the back just being like, you gotta stop. I know, I do, I'll try. Um, but my buddy, uh, he had this date and he, he borrowed this really nice car. It was like a 70s Corvette or something and he was excited just to drive it around. But what happened was the night was going so poorly for him and his date, she decided to pretend to go to sleep in the passenger side as he drove her to the after party. And immediately, he says, immediately as we pulled into the driveway, she just perked up and was like, well, we're here. And then she ditched him the rest of the night. So I wanted to kind of set the tone for these students about what it looked like to engage in good communication with one another and to say things like, you look nice. To say things like, thank you for being here with me, to try to coach them along with that sort of stuff. Christian school culture is also a bit unique. <laughs> so I also asked them, in the words of our high school principal, not to freak dance, or in the words of some fundamentalist Christians, to leave room for the spirit. <laughs> really, what, what I tried to do in this 20-minute talk was... And I don't know if they got this um, amidst all of the Snapchat things that went out. It's amazing I kept my job after these because it was just all over the interwebs. Um, but what I was trying to do in this 20-minute talk was to get the students thinking about their own self-worth and about the worth of those around them. And I also tried to warn them against some of the mistakes that I made as a young punk kid that was probably less concerned about engaging in good intellectual uh, stimulating conversation with, with my date. So in honor of week one of senior send-off, I wanted to revisit some of these themes. Now, we're not going to talk about dance, and I think we already covered that. Um, but I did want to maybe engage in what I have been fond of referring to as a dad talk, and I hope that throughout this time we can also do some affirmation as well. So what I have tonight, it's different from a typical Sunday sermon. As you know, we're usually just in the book of Mark, ripping it apart and trying to figure out what in the world this ancient story of a radical, homeless Jew, what that means for us uh, here in the 21st century. Um, what I have is a series of lessons that I have learned or that I'm currently learning. Uh, the stuff that comes up most often in my work as a pastor, the concerns that people have, the questions that people bring to the table about faith, the doubts that they carry about themselves or about life or about Jesus. Now, I know that the majority of you guys in here, you're not graduating, so this isn't like a senior talk, but I do think that this is pretty indicative of where a lot of us are just in our general day-to-day -day lives with, with Jesus. So here we go. In no particular order, I give you these. The plans that you have might change or they might not work out at all. The plans that you have might change or they might not work out at all. I went to a very small conservative Bible college, Lancaster Bible College. There's one other alumni somewhere, but she's in the kids, and we would give the Charger fight song, but it's not, it's not the right time. Um, 
as is often the case with new high school graduates, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I knew that I had, um, how can I put this? I wanted to be our high school math teacher. And I was pretty good at math, so I thought maybe I could, I could do that, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, note, if you do want to pursue mathematics, don't go to Bible college. I took one math class my entire four years there. I think it was entitled God and Math. <laughs> Not where you go for the sciences. But I apologize for that. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I mainly ended up there because my best friend had graduated the year before and he went there. Um, and he said, hey, you could probably play baseball and soccer if you go, and you could take some intro classes, and if you need to, you can transfer out. So that was my plan. Prior to enrolling, I had entertained the idea about pursuing a career in pastoral ministry, and I'd also uh, entertained the idea about, about teaching. To be honest, though, and I, I know I say this a lot, but I want to kind of reinforce this. I've never really been confident uh, in my capabilities as as a pastor. It's really just over the last few months where I've be began to allow myself to think this is what I should be doing. Um, I don't really know what to attribute that to or where that comes from, but especially back then I was scared out of my brains because the only ideas about pastors that I had were the guys that stood at the back of the, of the sanctuary when the service was over and they were, you know, kind of smiley and happy and they made you feel really warm and welcomed and if any of you have seen me out in public, you know that it's, it's not always that. Side story about this, I was at uh, Megan and Kyle's wedding and I was meeting some people for the first time and I was really hungry and I, they had some good snack mix on the table so I took a handful of snack mix and as I met this new person, instead of putting down the snack mix and shaking a hand like a normal person, I just kind of put my elbow out there and said, pleased to meet you. Yeah, so just excuse me if you, if you see me, if you see me about, yeah, Laura, I apologize for that. Uh, but I, I, I convinced myself that pastoring probably wasn't a good fit for me, and I began my college experience as an education major. Now, at LBC, I learned two things very quickly. One was I fell in love with the Bible, because I had never heard anybody talk about the Bible like they were talking about the Bible, like going beyond the surface, going beyond the what does this mean for me, and into historical context and literary context, and just really getting into these big conversations. And even though it was a conservative school, the professors there encouraged us to ask big questions about faith, about life, things that I had never even considered or allowed myself to consider up to this point. I read my first non-sports-related book in college. My mom helped me with a lot of my, my book reports up through senior year of high school. If you're, if you're curious, the book that I uh, read for the, my first book, this sounds so stupid, it was Knowing God by J.I. Packer, but just hearing people talk about the Bible in this way changed me. I also had a little pocket New Testament uh, that I carried around all the time, and wherever I had a spare minute, I would just start reading it. This is going to come into play for a second here. Um, Bible college is a weird matrix of strange things. Um, for example, one of the most notorious ways that guys would get girls at Bible college is they would pick up a guitar, they would go sit under a tree, and they would start singing praise songs, and the girls would just flock. I know what you're thinking. I didn't do that. I did have another move, however. I would take out my pocket New Testament. I would hand it to a girl and say, pick a passage, any passage, just start reading it, I'll tell you where it's from. 
and they would start reading from anywhere in the New Testament, I'd say, stop, that's 2 Corinthians 5. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. No, that did not work. My dating career at LBC was gloriously unsuccessful. Um, and just to be clear, no, this is not how I wooed my wife. The second thing that happened at LBC was I fell in love with teaching, and as a new education major, I had to take a standard intro to ed class. Some of you guys might know that. In that first class, you have to teach like a 10-minute lesson. So I, I got the syllabus, I looked at it, I saw that lesson, I immediately started panicking. I'm the type of person, you know this, it's whenever I'm, I'm taking a trip, I think about the parking from the moment I know that we're going, like if we're going to Philadelphia, I just start thinking, oh my gosh, where are we going to park? Is it going to be street parking? Is there going to be a lot there? How much is it going to be? Where are we going to... I think a lot about really dumb stuff. So of course, I was thinking about or scared to death of this lesson. And when it was my turn to teach in mid-semester, I vividly remember just being completely nervous walking up there uh, to give this talk. I decided to, to stay in my wheelhouse. I decided to talk about um, cuts of meat from a pig. So I had this big pig cut out and I had, I, this will go somewhere, just stay with me. And I had the different cuts of meat and I would unveil where they came from. Now, I say that because I was just so nervous walking up there, but as soon as I got in that space, I felt like this was something I wanted to continue to do, something that I, I fell in love with immediately, just being in front of people and, and teaching them about, about things. Once I started talking, the nerves, they just went away, and I it began to wonder if teaching was something that I could be doing with my life. So I was, I was turning into a huge nerd and I was falling in love with teaching and I thought that maybe the best path to go would be um, getting a master's and getting a PhD and trying to teach in college or teach in seminary. And all told, that path took me 13 years. There was a lot of detours along the way. And the plan that I had originally conceived in the year 2000, it changed. But in the process of pursuing that plan, I began to see a different plan unfold for myself. And I say all this to tie it in with the book of Romans. At the end of Romans, which is one of the most theologically dense writings in the New Testament, Paul reveals why he's actually engaged in this conversation with the Romans. First, at, the, at chapter 15, verse 14, he commends the Romans for being uh, upstanding. He says they're full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. And then Paul announces his plan. What he's going to do is he's going to go to Jerusalem and to, to um, give the churches there this collection that he has been gathering from the Gentile churches that he has been planting along the way. And once he does that, he's going to go on to Rome, but he's only going to stay there for a little bit. And what he wants to do is end up in Spain so he can continue to plant churches. Paul had this vision and it was out there, this goal of going to Spain, we know from other sources that Paul's travel plans get absolutely wrecked. He ends up being in Jerusalem for way too long. He ends up having all sorts of things happen to him. He ends up not going to Rome until two years later, and he does so with armed guards. The plan that he has for himself in this letter in Romans just does not unfold the way that he thinks it will unfold. Paul faces all sorts of oppositions, and N.T. Wright calls this trip to Jerusalem a near disaster. We don't even know if Paul ever gets to Spain. We don't have any sort of teachings that tell us that, but his desire to go there, it allowed him to do something great. N.T. Wright says this, 
one of the most important lessons in Romans 15 might be put this way. God allowed Paul to dream of Spain in order that he might write Romans, drop down here to the bottom, perhaps half of our great plans, the dreams that we dream for our churches and our world and even ourselves are dreams that God allows us to dream in order that on the way there we may accomplish almost without realizing it the crucial thing that God intends us to do. The plans that we have, the plans that we make for ourselves, they might change. They might never come to fruition, but along that journey as we are traveling and being committed to who Jesus has called us to be, we might find ourselves doing something different, doing something better. I've known so many students that they just have this plan and it's ingrained in stone and the way they talk about it, it's like this has to happen or else. And I've seen how sometimes it doesn't happen and I've seen that that causes them to begin to doubt who they are to doubt who God has called them to be. I think sometimes we put so much undue stress and undue pressure on ourselves to be this vision of who we are setting out to be that in the midst of that we miss who God is and the opportunities that we have along the journey. For some of you, you're so dead set on grad school or jobs or this or that that as you're going and as you're processing through that journey, you're missing the people to your right and to your left that desperately need you to pause, take your eyes off of that goal and turn and engage them. I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know if that resonates with where you are, but I know for the last 13 years, I've had this, this plan, this thing that I've been striving towards and I've had to turn around and say, that was nice, but where I am now is not the place that I expected. I'm the 18-year-old kid that said, I can't be that, that now feels as though, hopefully, this is something that I want to be slash should be doing. Number two. There will be days when you have no idea, absolutely no idea, what you in fact are doing, vocationally, relationally, emotionally, and even spiritually. There will be times when you are just in the midst of the weeds and you are confused. This is a familiar story for me in my line of work. I meet somebody for coffee. This person that's sitting across the table could be a student, a new college grad, a disgruntled employee working in a job that they no longer believe in. It could be someone who's concerned with big theological issues like how to reconcile science and faith or the apparent discrepancies in the Bible or the disconnect that they experience between what they believe and life. The participants and the situations in these conversations, they're varied, but at some point these people confess I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm supposed to be. I don't know what to believe anymore. For some folks, these moments, they create a, a huge crisis of faith and it can be absolutely crippling when those questions and those doubts and those whatever begin to invade and you just have no idea where it is that you should be going. A friend of mine, Noel, some of you know him, he introduced me to this quote from a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard a couple of years ago. And most people that I read this to, they hate it because it's very ambiguous, but I found so much hope in its simplicity. This is what Kierkegaard writes. 
Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. This is a quote from the Gospels. But what does this mean? What am I to do? What kind of striving is it of which it can be said that it seeks or desires the kingdom of God? Ought I to get a position corresponding to my abilities and powers in order to bring this about? No. Seek first the kingdom. Ought I then to give all my fortune to the poor? No. You are first to seek the kingdom of God. But does this then mean that in a sense there is nothing for me to do? Quite right. Nothing. In the very deepest sense, you are to make yourself nothing, to become nothing before God, to learn to keep silent. And it is in this silence that you begin to seek what must come first, the kingdom of God. I don't know where I'm supposed to go next. Seek the kingdom. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. Seek the kingdom. I don't know what to believe anymore. Seek the kingdom. I know, for some of you that are sitting here like, okay, that sounds really great, but what are we supposed to do with that? How does that, how does that work? I think sometimes we get so bogged down with the specifics of where my next step is going to be that we miss this big picture idea. There may not be some grand and highly specific plan for you. There might be freedom. There might be freedom that you need to find, and until you do, and when you do, seek the kingdom. There's a line in a movie, Chariots of Fire, where Eric Liddell, who's an Olympic runner, claims, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. It's like he was born to do this thing And I believe that for some folks, it works like that. When you're at your job, you are running to feel God's pleasure. I think of Joanne and her work at Epoch. And it's so clear when you see her in that space with those kids that she was born to impact their lives. If any of you have spent time with Sarah, you know that the conversation will immediately, nearly immediately go to any sort of issue about women's health. You know that her midwifery is something that is so ingrained in her, and she's so good at what she does. I was talking with somebody in one of our our checkups, and somehow it was with Lisa, and somehow Sarah's name came up, and they just said how great she was at her job, and I began to be so proud because there's this moment where people connect vocationally Same thing with Susie, like working with these kids at school, like just the way that you're able to engage them. And even with all of the paperwork and all the stuff that teachers have to do that's terrible, the way that you're able to live in the midst of that calling, it's inspiring. But then I think about other people where that's not their story. I think about Doug, who has said, ever since I've met him, I work in order to do the things that I'm called to do. I think about Christy and her work at SCS and how just with the kids, she's so great, but she's also so gifted in in other places and she works in order to do the things that she's called to do. Or Tracy, when dad was having his quadruple bypass surgery and Tracy Peterson shows up in the waiting room of the hospital, it's almost like he was born to comfort people. That's not necessarily his job, but when he he takes on that role, you can see that he is running 
to feel God's pleasure. And I think sometimes we sell ourselves short by creating this stream of my vocation has to be my calling. And if you're privileged to be in that, fly in it. But for some of you, it might not look like that. Regardless of our vocation, what we must all learn is to seek first the kingdom. That's our primary calling, regardless of what else we do to make money. And this seeking first the kingdom, it looks different for different people. Some of you are so gifted in this way or that way. I hope that you find the confidence not to put yourself on the back burner and shut yourself down as I did for so many years, but to be able to identify how you have been gifted to reach people for Jesus. Even in our flailing around when we have no idea what we're doing or where we are going, we must learn to seek first the kingdom, to love God and to love others, to bring heaven to earth to advocate for others to preach the gospel. There's gonna be moments in your life when the best decision that you can make is also the scariest. It might be scary because of what it'll cost you. It might be scary because it'll put you in an uncomfortable or undesired position. It might be scary because in taking this newly planned course of action, you will have to admit either to yourself or to other people that you were wrong. Whatever the case, just because something is difficult, it does not mean that you don't do it. In the Gospels, Jesus shows up and he does counter-cultural, counter-intuitive things for the sake of people. He does not play it safe. He invites people in who occupy the spaces on the margins and the outskirts and he says, follow me. We keep coming back to this idea about Jesus sticking his neck out for people and Jesus including the other. But not only does it seem to be significant, I keep asking myself, what would it look like if we actually did it? How revolutionized would this place be and this people be if sometimes we allowed ourselves to make the difficult decisions for the sake of people? We often place ourselves, when we're reading scripture, we often place ourselves in the role of the hero, the one who gets the praise. But Jesus keeps saying things like, lay down your life, pick up your cross, the implement upon which people are crucified and died, pick that up and follow me. What would it look like if we became a people that pursued Jesus in that way where we weren't a slave to fear any longer. There will be choices that you have to make that you do not feel equipped to make. As I was going over this talk, I felt like, man, this is a real downer. I'm sorry about that. But I've already told you a lot about my hesitancies as a pastor to step into, into this role. And, and over three and a half years, Doug can attest to this. There have been moments when he and I both feel so ridiculously unequipped. situations that we've been in where we have no idea what it is that we're doing or how we've been placed here or what we're supposed to do in response. Beyond school and jobs and these things, there's also gonna be choices that you have to make that seem really big, but I want you to hear this. You're not alone. I think that as a Christian community, we underestimate the role of the Spirit in our lives, moving us and transforming us and allowing us to feel encouraged and allowing us to be courageous. 
I also think that we underestimate the role of the community around us, the people that God has placed in your midst that can help you, that can guide you, that can give you advice, and that can be there with you in the middle of the trenches. I would implore you to listen to some of those people. At times, the choices that you make, you won't feel equipped to be able to make them. And finally, this, and this goes along with pretty much everything else in this talk. There's gonna be situations that you walk through in life when all you can do is trust. When nothing else seems certain and you keep taking a step in obedience. Life, even life with Jesus, as Martin Luther King Jr. would say, can be as hard as crucible steel. Some of you guys know this better than others. You have felt the sting of sickness and death, of brokenness and pain, of rejection, of neglect. You have lived from paycheck to paycheck. You have suffered under the prejudice of the powerful. You have been judged, ruled out, written off. You have been alone. My work at, um, at school was, was with the Psalms, and one of the things that I take solace in is this massive collection within our scripture of the lament psalms where life is not working out according to plan. And what we see in those moments is Israel saying, where are you? What are you doing? Why are all of these people surrounding me and you're just leaving me out here to die? In all but one of the lament psalms where these Israelites are praying to God with passion, in all but one there is a turn at the end of the psalm to an admission of trust. Yet, I will trust you. Even when life does not seem like it's working out, yet, I will trust you. Even though I have people surrounding me, wanting me to die, yet, I will trust you. Even though I am sick beyond belief, yet, I will trust you. Even though, yet, I will trust you. We see this played out as well in the life of Jesus, the one that we are called to emulate where before he is crucified, he's in the garden and he's praying and he says to his dad, if there's any other way that we can do this, let's do it. We see uh, a few scenes later, Jesus on the cross, and one of the things that's recorded that Jesus says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a lament psalm. I don't think that Jesus is just stepping into that because it, it works out really neat for him to fulfill that scripture. I think that what he's doing is in that moment actually asking a legitimate question. Where are you? How can I know, how can I be assured that you will be with me? But if we take the, the biblical witness for what it is, these psalms of lament turn in the midst of our disaster, in the midst of our difficulty in the midst of our suffering, they turn to trust. And what we have in Jesus is this example of moving from lament, where are you, what's happening, what are you doing to, yet I will trust you. There will be situations in life when all we can do is trust. I hope that regardless of where we are, graduated high school, college, grad school, just in the trenches of regular old life, that we can be honest with one another, that we can take some of these ideas and be able to call a spade a spade and say, I am struggling and I don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing or where I'm supposed to be. 
And I hope also that we are creating a community where in the midst of that, we can encourage one another to say, stay the course, seek first the kingdom, trust, even if you can't see what that next step will be. I think that in the midst of that, what we will find is that even when life doesn't end up with this plan that we have focused for ourselves along the way, what we will find is life and hope and opportunities to be ambassadors of justice, opportunities to lead people to Christ, to have lives being transformed, to follow Jesus, and not in a shallow way where we just hang out in a closet somewhere and read the daily bread, but where our lives are so immediately transformed that we begin to do the hard work and make the scary decisions to fight for justice and for people, to love with reckless abandon, knowing full well that Jesus has loved us when we weren't really bringing much to the table. My hope and my prayer for us is regardless of where we are in life, that that is something that we can rally around together and that we can follow Jesus as he is calling us to follow him.